Hi everyone, I'm Sean, and uh, we'll be reading from two parts of the Bible today, both in the New Testament. Uh, the first is the, from the first chapter of Romans, and I'll let you find that and give you a chance as well to hold your finger on the second part, which is in Second Peter, near the end of the Bible. That's in, in chapter one of Second Peter as well. Okay, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle and singled out for God's good news, which he promised long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was a descendant of David according to the flesh, and who has been declared to be the powerful son of God by the res resurrection of from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness. Second Peter, chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made this known to you by the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... A voice came to him from the majestic glory. This is my beloved son. I take a delight in him. And we heard this voice when it came from heaven, while we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word strongly confirmed. You will do well to pay attention to it, as to a lamp shining in a dismal place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. First of all, you should know this. Prophecy of... I think I've gone too far now, haven't I? I think we're stopping there. Sorry then. Okay. <laughs> I've got a bit of carried away. Sorry now, let's, uh, let's pray as we start, shall we? Let's just bow our heads together. Gracious Father in heaven, do thank you for your word. We do thank you and praise you that your word is living and active. And uh, I pray this morning as I... As I speak, I pray I'd speak clearly and faithfully as I should. And I do pray for each one of us here. I pray that by your spirit, you'd humble our hearts underneath your word. I pray you'd remove any pride from our hearts that prevents us from hearing your word rightly. And uh, I pray that uh, uh, we just respond rightly to what we hear. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now I'm told that uh, last week was the first time since 2003 that Easter and Anzac Day have fallen in the same week. Uh, now, for many working people, that's been a great opportunity. I don't know, you may have partaken in it, because it means by taking three days of annual leave, you get nine days. Brilliant, isn't it? Anyone uh, who's partaken in that this last week? Yep, we had some takers. Good, good. It's been absolutely brilliant. But I also reckon it's a brilliant opportunity for us today to look at two national holidays uh, side by side and actually see what they stand for us as uh, firstly New Zealanders and uh, what they mean to us uh, individually. And standing both events side by side, we actually see they do have many similarities. Uh, but probably the biggest is that both events are really based around a rem remembrance of sacrificial death for the sake of others. 
Uh, that's at the heart of both of them. Uh, on the one hand, we've got Jesus Christ uh, dying on the cross, just outside of Jerusalem. And on the, on the other hand, we've got numerous Kiwis uh, who have given their lives and served uh, for their country. Both are sacrificial deaths for the sake of others. A and broadly speaking, can I say that, I that is a, a quality, a characteristic, a characteristic that our society actually venerates. Uh, it's celebrated, isn't it? Now perhaps if I start with Anzac Day. Uh, Anzac Day in itself, it's a day when we remember all who fought uh, for this country uh, and in the many wars that New Zealand has been involved with. Uh, and we've been involved in quite a lot. Actually, if you look at the wars New Zealand's been involved with, uh, it is a truckload, you know, whether it be the Boer War, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, Iraq, uh, and numerous other wars that I haven't mentioned there. Uh, but the focal point and the flagship, really, of the commemorations on Anzac Day is really World War I, uh, isn't it? Uh, and that's a war uh, which I, I think, if you look at the history books, it impacted our country more than any other war. Um, I was looking at the stats. New Zealand sent 10% of its population to World War I, 1914 to 18. And of that 10%, one in five would die. Uh, that is huge. So uh, just remember, our population was smaller then. So if you think of today's equivalent, that would be like us sending 400,000 today and 80,000 of those dying. So it's phenomenal. And if you look at the stats, New Zealand per capita actually is up there in terms of how many, how many actually died. And, and it impacted our society massively. Uh, pretty much every family, if your family's been in New Zealand for that long, if you delve back into your family tree and all that kind of thing, um, I'll bet your bottom dollar you would have been impacted. You would have been impacted somewhere. Uh, I still remember talking to uh, my wife's granddad, uh, who passed away a couple of years ago, but he used to live in the house he was born in, in Littleton. And I, I still remember uh, saying to him my favourite question to old people, which is, what is your earliest memory? And his earliest memory, he said to me, was holding his mum's hand and seeing his brother off to World War I at the port. And I thought, wow, that impacted you that much, that you remember that moment. You know, wouldn't that be hard, sending your brother off to war, you know, seeing him go? Uh, now, thankfully for, for him, his brother, whose name was Percy, Percy came back, uh, but many didn't. Uh, many died over there. There's a memorial down the road from where I live that tells of a family that lost three sons, uh, and there are a number of families around the country that were like that. Uh, tragically, many young Kiwi men did not return. And of those that did return, most, all of them would have been emotionally scarred uh, and physically scarred too. My own granddad fought in World War I. Uh, he fought through the trenches in France and Belgium, and he was awarded a medal for bravery. It's called a Distinguished Conduct Medal. And as a DCM, awarded to non-commissioned officers for carrying his mates back under fire. And he made it back from the war, and, and I know he saw some pretty bad stuff, and he never really talked about it. And I think that was the same for most of the blokes that came back. He just, you don't talk about it. That is terrible. Uh, because, you know, he was scarred. Uh, and that's my connection to World War I. Uh, but like I said, I reckon most New Zealand families, you have a connection if you go back that far in this country. You have a connection somewhere because it had a massive impact, impact on this country. And it's also had a formative impact on our nation uh, as well. Uh, because rather than being seen to be a nation that's hanging on to the coattails of you know, the motherland, Great Britain, or whatever, uh, it was actually a coming of age for us as a nation. Uh, now, as I mentioned before, I've served in the army myself uh, for a number of years. And uh, as I mentioned, it was just a part-time army. Uh, I made it the lofty rank of Lance Corporal, 
it's one above private, just for the record. Okay, it's not actually that high. Uh, but I got, yeah, I got a stripe. Um, and uh, I learned firsthand that when you're in the army, uh, it's quite a selfless profession uh, because you've actually got to prepare yourself for the possibility of dying. So you go, I'm going to go, I might, you know, I might get called up and we're going to go fight and I might die. That's the reality of my job. That's in the job description. Uh, and that is in the job description when you're going to go fight for your country. And that's what these, you know, over 100,000 men did in World War I. They went out to fight on behalf of their country, knowing full well they may well die. They went for the greater good. You know, they went for king and country. They went for God and king, as they said. They went for the empire. And they went because they considered it their duty uh, for the greater good of society. And that, was, that is admirable. And I do wonder how many would do likewise today. I wonder if we've changed quite a lot in that, in that perspective. Uh, but I don't want to over-romanticise the whole thing either. I mean, some sceptics today would say that actually in sending our, our brightest uh, and youngest to World War I, we were a little bit naive. You know, we, were, we the lower class, kind of predominantly blue-collar minority down here in the colonies, were playing into the hands of a white-collar uh, European royalty and all that kind of thing as we gave our youngest and finest to this battle. A and perhaps there's something to that. Uh, because we did see that in hindsight, didn't we? That the war marketed as the war to end all wars. We know it didn't end all wars, did it? We seem to have had wars uh, constantly ever since. It didn't really bring, bring about peace and harmony, did it? That was a crock. It was not the war to end all wars. It was not the solution. And we seem to have had back-to-back -back wars ever since. And nowhere was the futility of war uh, illustrated better than at Gallipoli which really is a part of our World War I celebrations as well, or commemorations, uh, where due to a monumental botch-up, instead of being landed on a nice, flat piece of beach, which was away from you know, high points of firing down onto it and that kind of thing, the Anzac troops got landed two kilometres away, uh, which is basically at the bottom of a cliff, with the, the Turkish sitting on the top. Uh, and that's what we now know as Anzac Cove. And if you ever go there, uh, which I have, you'll get taken up to the top of the cliff, and you'll be shown where they were supposed to attack, and you'll see how futile the whole event was. It was actually impossible to get up the top of the hill. Uh, and for the record, the battalion I actually served in, uh, it was called the 7 Wellington Hawks Bay Battalion. A and the, and the, uh, the ancestor, if you like, of that battalion was assigned a hill called Chunuk Bear. Some of you might have heard of Chunuk Bear. Morris Shabbat wrote a play about it a while ago. And they were assigned to Chunuk Bear. And... Um, in August 1915, the Wellington Battalion was ordered to take that hill, and under their leader, a guy called Colonel Malone, they eventually did. And of the 760 who made it to the top, 60 came down. 60 came down, because after a couple of days, they just got shot to pieces up the top, and they had to concede the whole hill. And if you stand at the top of Trinic Bear today, you see this massive monument to all that died, and it's a big monument. Uh, and so whilst we applaud the selflessness of those who go to war for us, and in particular the bravery of our own young men who did what they were told at places like Gallipoli. We also lament the horrendous loss that war is and how powerless um, it seems that such sacrificial death continually is it's, it's unable to solve the problems of mankind. It just seems powerless. Which brings me to our second holiday of the week. And again, it's a holiday when we remember the sacrifice of somebody for others, namely Jesus of Nazareth, who also died a horrid death on what could also be described as an impossible hill, uh, so to speak. A and many would look at his death 
and say that it is romantic as it was, and in spite of the wonderful morals it seems to illustrate, they would say that just like all of our young men who selflessly gave their lives at Chinook Bear, it's actually powerless to sort anything out. That's what a lot of people say. Uh, consequently, to take it a step further, they would say Jesus is powerless. He's powerless, isn't he? His death was about as useful as an ashtray on a motorbike when it comes to sorting things out. I mean, you know, let's be honest, people would say, he came to bring peace on earth. Well, that's what the Christmas carolers sing, don't they? But isn't Gallipoli the proof that he didn't? And they, they ask, go figure. And that's the road of reasoning a lot of people take in coming to the conclusion that Jesus is powerless. Uh, they're not too sure of what exactly the point of him coming and dying actually was. So the only option they live open to themselves is that he seems to be simply a good man who died young. In fact, if you ever, um, I remember we were in London for the Millennium Celebrations, there was this big Millennium Dome, and they had um, a thing on religion there. And that's what they said about Jesus. Jesus, a good man who died young. That was it. That was all they said. So, you know, and those people that read that were thinking, you know, great role model and stuff. And, uh, you know, sure, you'd probably let him babysit the kids and all that kind of thing. Seems like a decent guy, doesn't he? Great beard. Uh, but apart from that, he's irrelevant to us. That's what they'd say. So what do we do? At Easter time, we just simply stuff ourselves with chocolate and take a holiday and forget about it. That's what we do. But as you may have guessed by the fact I'm standing here, well, you'd hope uh, by the reason I'm standing here that I am not persuaded by that particular road of reasoning. And I want to put it to you today that the cross upon which Jesus died was not some sort of symbol of forlorn kind of defeat, uh, not a powerless yet romantic role model for self-sacrificial death, heralded, heralded by uh, moralistic do-gooders, but it's actually the most powerful moment uh, in the history of mankind. And look, you know, I don't know if where you are with this or how familiar you are with it, you might think that's a ridiculous claim to make. Indeed, once upon a time, as I was saying to Rowan, I actually thought that was a ridiculous claim to make as, as well, because I thought Jesus was irrelevant and powerless. Um, but what I want to do this morning is really just to take on a bit of a journey. I'm going to take you through some bits of the Bible, and the outline is, is in your handout there. Uh, and as I take you through these bits of the Bible, I'm hoping to show you why Jesus is not powerless. And in fact, the cross upon which he died, far from being an abject moment of failure, and the pointless waste of a good man is actually the most powerful moment in the history of mankind. And whether you're a, uh, you know, we, wherever you are in the spectrum, whether you're a hardened skeptic, whether you're a militant atheist, or even you're a committed Christian, if I can just get you to think that Jesus is more powerful than you thought at the outset, then I reckon I would have achieved my objective. Now to do that, there's four points, and I've gotten down there on your handout, so I want to walk you through. And with each point, I'm going to take you to a couple of little bits of the Bible from which each point is derived. So you can see I'm not fibbing. I'm not making this up, okay? Uh, and if you think I'm fibbing, then come, come and ask me questions at the end. I'd love to, love to hear what you think. The first point is this that I want to make. His death was purposeful. Uh, a lot of people think Jesus is powerless because he, was, he died. You know, they'll say things like, oh, you know, his ministry is going really well till he died. Oops. As if, you know, that shot the whole thing in the foot. But the truth is, to use Gallipoli speak, there was no botch up here. He landed on the right beach. Uh, let me explain. Uh, there are three times in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, 31, and 9, 31, and 10, 33, during a period in the Gospel 
where Jesus is on his final way to Jerusalem with his disciples in tow. And he makes the same point to them. I want to make that point here, which tells us clearly that the death of Jesus was purposeful. Give or take a few words. This is what he says each time. I'm just going to read out chapter 8, verse 31 of Mark. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. Now remember, this is on the way to Jerusalem. This is before his arrest. This is before the cross. Yet Jesus makes it clear here in advance that he must die. It's something he had to do. So you see, his death is not the consequence of a logistical botch-up. Uh, you know, good but powerless man who died young, uh, which is pretty much the case for uh, many of our young men at Gallifrey. Yes, on the surface there was injustice as he was wrongly sent to the cross by a combination of you know, corrupt Jewish and Roman authorities who felt threatened by him. But there is a deeper purpose at work here because he came to die. His death was purposeful. So he knew full well there's a hill and I'm going to die on it. And then later, as further proof that this was purposeful, also just before the, before the cross, uh, when Jesus is finally betrayed to the authorities and the mob led by Judas come to arrest him and Peter flies to a rage, as Peter often does, and he chops one of the mob's ears off, kind of hacks it a bit. And um, interestingly enough, Jesus says to his disciples this in Matthew 26, 53, he says this, do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? Now, I don't know about you, that sounds quite powerful to me, doesn't it? Uh, at that point, Jesus, you know, he says, yeah, I could have called down legions of angels. I, and he would have absolutely roasted those guys who came to arrest him. It would have been like, you know, a sandfly meeting a Mack truck on the motorway, wouldn't it? It would have been like, you know, David Tour meeting Rowan Hillsden in the boxing ring. There wouldn't have been a show, would there? I'd love to so I'd pay to see that. Uh, there wouldn't have been a show, but he didn't do that. Uh, and you want to know why he didn't do that? Because he came to die. As my seven-year-old daughter uh, often says to me, it's one of our favorite phrases as we read the Bible together at nights, uh, she often says, Daddy, you know what held Jesus up on the cross? It wasn't the nails. It was the love. And she's right. It was the love. It wasn't the nails. His death was purposeful. Uh, it was something he had to do. And it would take great power to accomplish. Which brings me to my second point. His death was selfless. So first point, his death was purposeful. Second point, his death was selfless. Similar to our brave young men who selflessly laid it all on the line to go to a foreign, unknown land, uh, fully knowing that they may die, uh, fully prepared that they might die. Uh, Jesus' death was similar in the sense that he too selflessly went to a place that in one sense was foreign to him, yet he knew full well he would die. Um, but I put it to you that he actually gave up a lot more to do that than our brave soldiers did. He actually took selflessness up a notch, if you like. I know that's a big claim, but just let me explain. Listen to these words from the Apostle Paul to the church in Philippi. Uh, and in the text here, he's actually urging fellow Christians to have that same attitude as Jesus, which is actually what was modeled to those who went off to World War I as well. But just listen uh, to what he actually says about Jesus in this text here from Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 8. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, 
but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So you see, that's what I mean about the selflessness of Jesus. And here's the difference from our Anzacs. Jesus was God. But in humility, he made himself nothing. Taking the nature of a servant, he came in appearance as a man. Now, I'll put it to you that here is, if you like, the apex of selflessness and would take far more power than you can possibly imagine. God Almighty taking the nature of a servant it is so selfless, it's almost impossible for us to fathom. A king should be served. And, and this is not just any king, this is the king of kings. The king of kings should be served. God, God should be served. But this king came in appearance as a man, took beatings, rejection, and ultimately death on a cross to serve. That is incredible selflessness, which begs the next logical question, selfless for whose sake? Who's on the receiving end of the selflessness? Well, Jesus himself gives the answer in Mark 10, 45, where he says, for even the Son of Man, that's Jesus referring to himself, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The answer is it was for us. So he came from heaven to powerfully give his life as a ransom for us. Uh, which brings me to my next point, and probably the most controversial point today, is that his death was necessary. So to recap, his death was purposeful. Uh, the second point really, his death was for you. Uh, and the third point is his death was necessary. Now, if you walked up to people today and you said, Jesus paid a ransom to free you, you'd probably be laughed out of the room. And I know so because I actually laughed a few Christians out of the room for saying that very thing to me until uh, I became one at the age of 28. You know, what are you talking about? I don't need to be ransomed from anything. I'm completely fine. I'm not in bondage to anything. And if there was a God, he'd want me on his team because I might have the odd slip up, but apart from that, I'm a great guy. That's basically what we all say, isn't it? And you might be thinking something similar now. Um, but look, you know, if nothing else, without going to the nitty-gritty of this, from the outside looking in, our problems must be major because the Son of God had to die on a cross for them. Okay? And that's a pretty big point of it. Things aren't right. The alarm bells are ringing. Uh, but when people say, I'm a pretty good guy, God would want me on his team, kind of line, they take that tack. Um, the thing is, there are typically three things that they are not picking up about why the death of Jesus is necessary. And I'm just going to roll through them now. Firstly, and underpinning it all, is that God desires those who he created in his image, for his glory, to live in a relationship with him, an active relationship. We're made to know God and enjoy him forever. And I assure you, that's a great thing. That's a fantastic thing. God is not a cosmic killjoy. That is a great thing. And that is what was behind God sending his son into the world. It's really to resolve a predicament that prevented that actually happening. And it's a predicament caused by two other things which placed us on the horns of a dilemma, which would really require something extremely powerful to resolve. And here, if you like, 
was our Chinook bear. Here's the impossible hill which we cannot climb ourselves and cannot conquer. And the two things are this. God is a holy God. We are sinners. And I tell you now, the two are mutually exclusive. Who knows that from maths? Mutually exclusive at a school. The two are not, yeah, the two are mutually exclusive, okay? Holy God, sinners, eh, eh, impossible. Impossible hill, Chinook bear, okay? Sinners, and for record, that's all of us. Sorry to rain on your parade if you didn't know that. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All, every one of us. Uh, sinners cannot come into the presence of a holy God. That is a God who's our creator. He made us. Uh, he's majestic. He's glorious beyond reproach. The two are mutually exclusive. And it's not simply that you're not allowed. Hey, you got any sin? Oh, yeah, I have. Oh, sorry, you can't come in then. It's actually, it, it's, it's impossible. Think of, you know, che- putting cheese on a hot gr- George Foreman grill. Think of wandering around in your speedos on the sun. You know, you can't. It's not going to happen. And what separates us from God is our sin. I don't know what you think of sin. It's not a very popular word, is it? Um, you know, uh, no one likes to talk about sin. They'd rather be talking about the weather or rugby or Benji Marshall or even earwax. They'd rather talk about anything apart from sin. But Jesus took sin seriously. Case in point, here's what he says in Mark chapter 9, verse 42 to 48, and which is actually probably the harshest verse in the Gospel of Mark. This is what Jesus uh, said about sin. And if anyone causes any of these uh, little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to be thrown to the sea with a large millstone tied around his neck. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go into hell where the fire never goes out. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than to have two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than have two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Now here, Jesus is communicating the gravity of sin. Okay, He's not telling us to chop everything off because we'd be a room of torsos if that was the case. Okay, He's getting over the gravity of our sin. He's communicating the seriousness of that sin. And sin is not serious, or sin is serious because it's not just the occasional lapse in rule keeping. Sin is at its heart a rejection of God. I've heard it described, and I quite like the description, so I'm going to pinch it and use it myself. I've heard it described that sin is less akin to getting a parking ticket and more akin to parking on the parking warden's foot. Okay? It is a personal affront to God. So it's not a failure to keep rules and tick boxes, it's actually an offense to God because ultimately it's a rejection of God and His Word. It's saying, I know a better way, clear off, I'm doing this my way. And that is why Jesus speaks so harshly and passionately about it, because he does not want us to reject a good and loving God and go to hell, which is where we deserve to go if we give God the bird and do our own thing. Especially if this is a God you know, who in his providence has given you every good thing you enjoy, even if you don't believe him. I mean, how are you going to feel when that's taken away from you as well? Yeah, I thought that was all mine. It wasn't. God gave it to me in the first place. Uh, but the great news, and what is really at the heart of this gospel, is that in Jesus, the Son, God, the Father, has provided the solution to the horns of this dilemma, and it is the cross, where justice and mercy meet. And the most powerful display you'll ever see at the cross. Because at the cross, the price for our rejection of God is powerfully paid. That means justice is done. God is consistent with himself. And on the other side, the love of God for us is powerfully shown. Mercy is shown to us. So at the cross, 
Jesus, by dying there, will powerfully scale this impossible hill for us that we might enjoy the relationship with God for which we were primarily designed. Uh, which, to use a good South Auckland quote, is O for awesome. Okay, I just want to say that. I always wanted to say that in the sermon. Um, and illustrating the start of this wonderful new relationship in the Bible, indeed the, the power of what is going on here, is that in the Gospels, at the very moment Jesus dies on the cross, and this really brings the whole thing home, it, 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 the very moment that Jesus dies on the cross, it is significant that this massive curtain over the other side of town, which is as thick as the span of a man's hand, this massive curtain at the temple, the Holy of Holies, which traditionally was where the presence of God was supposed to dwell, this curtain separating the people uh, from God was torn in two from top to bottom. At that very moment, Jesus died, indicating that because of what happened at the cross, the way is now open for you to live in an active relationship with your Creator. And that's fantastic news because your sins, for which you deserve condemnation and for which you are separate from God, have been paid for by Jesus at the cross where justice and mercy met on that day. And we can now live in a relationship with a holy God as was originally intended. Uh, which leads me on to my next point. His death was accepted by God. So to recap so far, his death was purposeful. His death was for you. His death was necessary. His death was accepted. Now, when Jesus died on the cross, he exclaimed the words, it is finished. It's actually one word, but it's translated three. It is finished. So he didn't morbidly say, I'm finished. You know, like some sort of Marvin the Paranoid Android. Oh, I'm finished. That's it. I'm a goner. He actually exclaimed, it is finished. It's finished. It's an exclamation kind of word. It's similar to the kind of word you might say, okay, if you read of the roof over summer and you get to the last, say it's tiles, and you get to the last tile, it's finished. It's that kind of exclamation, okay? Um, and Jesus said that because he knew the selfless purpose for which he had came, or he came, i.e. to die for our sins, to reconcile us to God, was complete. So he was not powerless at all, far from it. He'd reached the top of the cliff at that point in time. He'd won the battle if you like. Uh, I've knocked that so-and-so off, as Ed Hillary would have said. It's slightly different words. Uh, and proof of this sacrifice, uh, proof that this sacrifice was accepted by God the Father, was that Jesus was raised to life. So if death was the transaction by which your sins are paid for, the resurrection of Jesus is the eftpos receipt from God that says those wonderful words, you long to see when you're standing at the counter of a shop buying something on your card, accepted. Transaction, ex I love those words when you're at the shop. It's the same kind of thing with the resurrection. Accepted. That transaction is accepted by God. Sacrifice accepted. So God says your sins, past, present, future, are paid for because of the sacrifice of my son, which I have accepted for you. It's great news. But the resurrection is important for another reason, because as Romans uh, 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 4 tells us, which we had read at the start, because of that resurrection, Jesus is declared with power to be the Son of God. So God truly, well, well and truly declares to the world by the resurrection in power as this bookend of this wonderful chain of events, that's my Son. Listen to Him. 
Listen to me. And I ask you today, are you doing that? Are you listening to him? And are you listening to his son? But the resurrection is important for another reason too, because the resurrection presents the proof to the world that death is not the end. And let's be honest, you know, death scares our culture witless, doesn't it? Uh, ten of my colleagues died uh, during the Christchurch earthquakes that I was working with. Three were Christian, seven were not. Uh, so I attended all the funerals. Um, but of all the funerals, uh, you know, each of those funerals presented an assumption of what happens after death. And I put it to you today that seven of those were complete fabrications. They had no idea. They were just making that up. They didn't know. But here is someone who has powerfully conquered death, who's actually gone through it and knows what happens on the other side and is qualified to tell us what that is. And first and foremost, by the resurrection, Jesus proves to the world that he will be the judge. And there's going to be judgment. That's what's going to happen. Uh, As Paul said in Athens to a bunch of uh, non-believers, Acts chapter 17, verse 31, he's talking about God here. He says this, Uh, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. That's the proof. Man is destined to die once and then face judgment. And it will be a completely fair judgment. And their measuring bar will be, have they trusted in the only one who actually did have the power to save them? Have they? Have they trusted in Jesus? Jesus who came to die a purposeful death for their sake, to storm that impossible cliff that they humbly acknowledged they could not scale because of the magnitude of their sin and the holiness of God. Have they trusted in Jesus who rose from the dead to show that the price for your sin has been accepted by God so that you can now partake in this ridiculous blessing of being counted as a son of God? And that is to say, you have the inheritance. Uh, you are the son of God. You, you, you know, the firstborn son gets the inheritance. You have, you have the inheritance of God. Um, it's a ridiculous privilege. Have you trusted in this powerful Jesus? And this isn't just for you know, those investigating Christianity for the first time. Even if you're a regular here, if you call yourself a committed Christian, is that what you continue to trust in day upon day? Because when Jesus said, it's finished, he meant it, it's finished. It's finished. There's nothing you can add to that. Uh, you know, are you trying to add something to this completed work of Jesus? Are you trying to climb the hill yourself and push the Jesus back down the bottom? Well, don't, because you can't. Uh, read Galatians if you don't believe me. Um, wherever you're at, uh, you have the evidence of the powerful Jesus before you today. Uh, and I, I guess the, the question I really want to end with is, what are you doing with that? What's your response you know, I was looking at the, the, um, the tick boxes, the explaining Christianity, um, there's loads of ways you can respond to what you're hearing today. Um, and I just challenge you and encourage you to, to respond rightly to what you hear. Uh, so please, take this powerful victory at the hill and make it your own. And continue to make it your own every day till that judgment day. Until you see Jesus face to face and that faith becomes sight and if you do in spite of what the world may throw at you in this life and i tell you now it's going to throw stuff at you until jesus returns he said so there's going to be more wars there's going to be more suffering 
He said they will. Uh, you can rest assured, though, if you trust in him, that this is merely a rearguard reaction. It's a rearguard reaction of a sore loser in a fallen world because Jesus has the victory. Uh, because you know the battle has already been won at the cross. That is the most powerful moment in history. Uh, as Romans says, in Christ we can be more than conquerors because in Christ we will have the victory. Uh, as Paul said in Colossians, which I understand you've been studying recently, chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, for in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. You see that? Jesus is the head over every power and authority. He's not powerless. He is the most powerful one of all, and if he is yours and you are his, nothing in all creation will separate you from the powerful love of God in Christ. The victory will be his, and it can be yours if you are found trusting in him on that day. Uh, so I conclude that without a shadow of a doubt, based upon this, that Jesus Christ is most certainly not powerless. Quite the opposite. He's actually the epitome of power. And I hope you can see that too. And uh, if you see it, I sincerely hope you commit yourself to responding in an appropriate manner to what you hear. Let's pray as we close, shall we? Our gracious Father in heaven, we just we pray to you in the powerful name of Jesus. We thank you for his purposeful, selfless death on our part, on a hill we simply could not climb. And Father, we just want to turn and repent of those times we thought we have the power to climb that hill. We know we can't, Father. We are powerless, but you are mighty. Uh, Father, we lament the state of our hearts which caused this and made this necessary, but we praise your grace which has provided a remedy in Jesus, your Son. And you know each one of our hearts here, Lord. You know how we've responded to this and where we're at. And I pray that by your Spirit, you'd have each of us know what we ought to be doing in response to what we hear. I pray this in the powerful name of Jesus.